people. But have you ever been doing something where everything seemed fine and all of a sudden distraction was thrown into the mix? I think we've all been there. In movies, this is called a wrinkle. In literature, this is called a twist. These wrinkles and twists in your life can be issues that need your immediate attention or a problem where you need to maybe chase a rabbit in a meeting that takes an hour or so to fix. Eventually, you end up solving the problem or the wrinkle, and then you look at yourself or you look around at the people in the room and you go, whew, now, where were we? And you get back to where you were. I feel this might be where both local churches as well as the global church is today. I, I mentioned last week that all levels of church and society have been distracted in, in many ways. In many ways, they've been disrupted by the last two years. And I believe a good way for us to look forward into 2022, at least as a local church, is to reorient ourselves to where we were just shortly before the pandemic started. If you remember, right when the pandemic started, we were in the book of Acts. So, let's move forward by returning to where we left off two years ago. So where were we? Ah, yes, we were in Acts 2. Let's turn to Acts 2. I think this is a great place to start fresh again, because this is where the church started fresh with the coming of the Holy Spirit in the disciples. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It's in your sermon notes. I hope you brought your Bible with you this morning. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. We are going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 42. Acts chapter 42 through 45. says this, Paul writes under inspiration, excuse me, Luke writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came on upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Let's look at the first two verses again. Let's look at the first two verses, verses 42 and 43, and see how the disciples were bound by the basics, how they were bound by the basics. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done throughout through the apostles. This was a church experiencing, in this context, in this verse when it was written, a church experiencing fear and it was experiencing persecution. In this particular verse, in these particular set of verses, the church was small and without much of an internal structure or organization. Now from a modern viewpoint, church, it seemed that what this church needed was perhaps a slick marketing campaign to attract new members or maybe maybe even a PR campaign that put them in the most positive light possible. Maybe they even needed lobbyists to convince the Roman authorities that Christians really weren't as bad as they seemed to the culture around them. Do we see the disciples doing this? 
Do we see them implementing these things at all or strategizing in this way in verse 42? We don't. What do we see the early church doing with limited resources, with limited members, and a relatively low public approval? What do we see them doing as most important here? Verse 42 tells us, it says, they were devoted to what? The apostles' teaching, fellowship, eating together, and prayer. On the surface, if you were just to view these things just as they are on the surface, these practices seem almost too simple to be effective. They seem too basic to work. But when the church centered around doctrine, when it's centered around fellowship, when it's centered around building relationships and prayer, the church just didn't achieve a type of equilibrium with the outside Roman Empire. The church took off. Now, as Southern Baptists, we have really talented people and uh, organizations who do our public relations for us who produce super slick content. Think about the Lottie Moon videos we watch. And think about the Annie Armstrong. Think about what we do each summer for VBS. I mean, that is high quality stuff. We have pretty decent lobbyists who make it their lives to work themselves into the political sphere to reason and persuade government officials to enact policies that honor the Lord. But in the end, ultimately, church, friends, who is the best PR firm we have? We are the ones. The local Christian in their workplace, the local Christian in their school, we are the ones who do the greatest, greatest lobbying for Christ, for the causes of Christ in our culture. It's you and it's me. It's a church that is faithful to the basic functions that we read about in verse 42. And that's why we have to take, we have to be especially careful because we can also be the worst PR or the worst lobbyist to the culture if we are not careful. Now let's notice in verse 43, take a look at verse 43 really quick. It says these practices led to certain results. It led to awe and wonder and signs being done in the early church. Why? Why is this the case that these basic things led to such amazing results? There's such a basicness, if that's even a word, in these practices that the early church is flourishing can be attributed only to God Almighty Himself. If it was talent working, if it was slick speaking or great marketing, they could probably attribute it to that. But what the early church did, they did things so basic, so by the letter of God's law, that they could only attribute it to God Almighty Himself. Could it be that we don't see the things we see in Acts today, or perhaps in our churches, or in the churches at large, is because we don't act like the church in the book of Acts, and we don't hold to these same things to the same degree that they held to them. Which is why any church that emphasizes trying to be relevant to the culture over biblical faithfulness will ultimately fail in the long run. Y'all hear what I'm saying about this? If we emphasize being relevant for relevancy's sake with how we structure our church, with what we do here, if it's just 
in order to get people in here by being attractional over biblical faithfulness, it will fail in the long run. Why? Because relevancy is temporary. It always changes. Relevancy is always temporary, and especially today, it's a moving target. What's in, what's out, what's popular, what's trendy. Jesus gave us very specific guidelines on how to build his church and the things that he values. And it's not just being relevant to the culture. It's being being faithful to the scripture. Now, this is why I say this. Remember, disco used to be relevant. It's not anymore, okay? Oldsmobile used to be a relevant car company. No offense to anybody who still drives an Oldsmobile. Ask anyone under 30 who Phil Donahue is, or Geraldo, or Ricky Lake. God forbid, don't do that, you know? And uh, believe it or not, those three people, they used to have a loud voice in the culture. They used to be very relevant, but they're not anymore. So running for relevance is not what we're called to do. We're called to be biblically faithful to reaching people for Christ according to God's standards in Scripture. I wish I had the ability to communicate to churches and pastors that relevancy for its own sake, just for relevancy's sake, is not the top goal of the church, but being relational is. Relationships, not relevancy, is where the church is powerful. Relationships, not relevancy, is where the church flourishes in uncertain times. Relationships, not relevancy, is where we find the heart of Jesus during his earthly ministry. God's constant pursuit of a relationship with humanity is the constant stream throughout Scripture. And so if that's the case, what, how do we act in this world as believers? What do we take from the, the, the New Testament church? Well, we find out in the next two verses how they, they held all things in common. Let's look at verses 44 and 45 together. Verses 44 and 45, they held all things in common. It says, and all who did what? Believed, okay? So belief is the bedrock concept, believes, and then they were what? There was belief, and then there was a next step. It was what? Being what? Together. There wasn't a random scattering of people. Even though we're individuals and we scatter throughout the week, there's a belief that that motivated them to meet in what fashion? To meet together. And they had most of their stuff in one spot. Or they had some of their stuff that they shared. Is this what the scripture says? It said they had all their stuff, all their things in common. Verse 45 says, and here's a drastic thing. Here's, it's even still radical for us today in 2022. And they were selling all their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. One of the defining beliefs of the early church, the things that marked them very clearly, and, and it's for us today too, but especially the early church, is the belief that believers are to practice their faith together in person. Together in person. 
It's an interesting dynamic, isn't it, that we have as Christians. On one hand, we're commanded to practice our faith together with each other, corporately. On the other hand, we're commanded to have personal walks with Jesus that flourish outside of this building. And I don't think these two are in conflict. These are two sides of the same coin. They're two aspects of Christian growth that you cannot separate. For example, if I view my faith, if I view my faith as a worship-only type of thing, like I go to Sunday school, I go to church, maybe a Wednesday night here or there, if that's all it is, if I can just isolate it into that little box, then I'm doing something on one day, maybe even two, that should take a top spot on every single day which is the worship and submission to Jesus. If I'm only doing it on one day, if all I do is just go to Sunday school or go to church and that's, that's it, if my worship is just a Sunday morning thing. And, and believe it or not, you know, many Christians live this way. Like, I just, I, I'm good, I go to church. And then the rest of the week, it's just I live my life in a, in a different way. They may not be bad people. They may not be cruel people but they definitely live their life one way on Sunday and one way Monday through Saturday. If we lived our life like this, if, if I took this same posture in marriage or in parenting, what type of spouse would I be? What type of parent would I be? What type of spouse or parents would we be if we showed our, our love, our devotion, or our commitment to our spouse or to our kids only one day out of the week. In fact, if, if we did that, that type of practice would probably be confusing and maybe even neglectful. I would say it was neglectful to our loved ones and family members. So if we just, if we only have a Sunday morning only mentality when it comes to worship, then we are confused about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. But if my relationship with Jesus, on the other hand, is separated from the local body, the local corporate body at all, like I have a personal relationship with Jesus, but I want nothing to do with the church. I don't want to walk in there. I don't like going to that building. Then I'm being neglectful to my Christian walk as well. You might hear someone criticize the practice that we as believers have of regularly meeting together in a church by saying, well, the early church didn't have beautiful buildings and sanctuaries and youth departments to meet in. I don't think worshiping in a building like this is something that you'd see in the New Testament. To that, I would say, you're right. They didn't have public structures and buildings in the early days of the church, but it doesn't mean they weren't meeting together corporately from the very beginning either. The early church met in houses, house churches. They met in caverns and underground caves in some instances. And they gathered together for what purpose? To break bread, as it, say, as it says. Some Christians might ask if Christianity spread so fast in the Roman Empire, then why don't you see ruins of ancient churches dotting the Roman Landscape for the first 300 years. 
The reason you don't see Christian buildings and meeting houses for the first 300 years of Christianity was because it was illegal to do so. It wasn't until the Edict of Milan, issued in 313 by the first Christian Caesar Constantine, that Christians could publicly build meeting houses. The Edict of Milan was a law that issued religious tolerance for Christianity and ended their official persecution within the Roman Empire. And it was only about 70 years later when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. In 380, Constantine issued the Edict of Thessalonica and instantly made the Roman Empire the Holy Roman Empire. Were they that holy? Not really. Okay. But in title, that's what they were. So the New Testament also notes that Christ was extremely observant of corporate worship. In Mark 1.21, Luke 2.41, and he believed in the corporate body, the protection of the corporate body so much that he was incensed when it was being disrespected by the money changers in Matthew 21.12. Of course we are called to Christ as individuals. But never forget, we are still called the flock. Never forget we are still to function as a body. This truth is salient throughout the New Testament. The idea of a Christian isolated from the body is foreign to Christ's command and the entire whole of Scripture. Finally, our our, our Christian walk is not only to be for the here and now, but to prepare us for heaven as well, which which isn't a place of isolated believers. Heaven will be a place including all believers from all tongues, tribes, and nations if we believe coming together for corporate worship is somehow not Jesus' intention, that it's only about a personal one-to-one relationships without any consideration of the larger body of Christ, then we're going to be shocked when we get to heaven. Because there's going to be a lot of people there. Hopefully, hopefully there's going to be a lot of people there, and I think there will be. Heaven was built for the church globally and for us as individuals as well. C.S. Lewis, who wrote Mere Christianity and the Chronicles of Narnia, he wrote about the purpose of attending church in Mere Christianity. He said, enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say, landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. Let's let's wrap up by looking at verse 45 together. It says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this verse isn't solely as much about um, making material possessions out to be inherently sinful as much as it is for Christians to know how to put them in their proper place. There were many motivations the early church had for selling their possessions. One was to ensure the needs of those in their corporate body were met, that no one in their local church went without food, clothes, resources. This was a symbol of mutual care 
for each other under persecution. Two, it was to ensure the body's needs were met so they could meet the needs of those outside their church walls. For the entire body to function well in ministry, they wanted the members of the church to be fed, have clothes, and have their basic needs met. It was attractional. It was attractive to the outside culture that members of this community loved on one another in the way that they did. And they didn't have a group of haves and have-nots, a group of powerful people who exerted power over those of lesser means. It was a way of saying we are all equal at the foot of the cross. And the, the, the Southern Baptist Convention's cooperative program has, you know, believe it or not, we take that seriously. This is why we have the cooperative program. We pool all of our resources together, just like we did with Lottie Moon. You may not think that $3,000 on its own is a big deal, but couple it with 46,000 other churches, put that together, oh my goodness, what we do. You may not think our given our, 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 our little percentage every month to the cooperative program makes a dent, but oh yes it does when we send relief uh, by Send Relief of the North American Mission Board. We are one of the top three natural disaster relief organizations in the United States by what we give every month to the cooperative program. Whenever there's a natural disaster, Southern Baptists are there. Whenever there's a natural disaster, trust me, your cooperative program dollars bring tangible boots on the ground relief to people who are really hurting and really starving. The tornadoes in western Kentucky that ha happened just a few weeks ago, guess what? We were one of the first ones on the ground. The Kentucky Baptist Convention and the Southern Baptist Convention were building plate, were repairing, clearing brush, cooking meals, making sure people had uh, sanitary items, all of those things before almost anybody else was there. This is what we do. This is what you do because we pull all these things together because we believe what is written here. Three was to prepare them for martyrdom. While they pulled their resources was to prepare them for martyrdom. They sold their possessions to prepare them for martyrdom. This isn't talked a lot about very much, um, but the historian... Uh, Robert Louis Wilkin, in his book, The Christians as the Romans Saw Them, discusses the Christian motivation for giving up possessions was a proving ground and a training that reflected their willingness to give up their own life. If one wasn't willing to give up one of their ten pairs of sandals, how would they be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice if called upon? This was a very real and present reality for the Christians living during this time. And a symbol of, of one's willingness to literally give everything away for the sake of the gospel. And as I said before, the local, national, and global church today has seen a distraction and a disturbance in the last two years. It's unavoidable, and we have to admit it. Before I became a lead pastor, my areas of ministry had been totally in student ministry, education, and discipleship. So I'm always listening really close when I hear seasoned pastors 
give advice or talk about, you know, what their life is like in ministry and what they've experienced. And from talking with them and hearing from these guys and listening to these guys who have walked decades and decades ahead of me in my shoes, I keep noticing two big things. One, this is the hardest season in their lives to be in ministry and leading a church. And two, that most churches, if not all, are currently walking their churches through very challenging waters that they've never experienced before. And as sad or perhaps depressing as that might sound on the surface, it also made me do a lot of reflection recently. It's forced me to pull back and think, and one of the conclusions that I've come away with is that the American church, the church here in the United States, with all this distraction, with all that stuff that's going on, we may have right now more in common with the first century believers than at any other time in our nation's history. And even though it may be uncomfortable, even though it may feel like churches are are in for a time of change and transition, we can look at the church in Acts and see they were in positions that we can apply to our lives 2,000 years later. Let's never lose sight of the essential Southside. Let's never forget to hold all things in common and that the things we hold in common are far more worthy, beautiful, and Christ-honoring than what might seek to separate us. Let's never see our service to the Lord, our giving, or, or whatever we do to the Lord as empty works or give in to the temptation to think that they're meaningless. They're not. Let's understand that when we give... We are symbolizing our willingness to give our lives away, both in life and in death, if it ever comes to it. So Southside, this is where we are. So let's embrace it. Let's work until he comes and continue forward. As Sam comes to lead...